0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Litsky. Let's meet the panel for what Tony Blair would call this week's big doings. (laughs) Roz Taylor is the editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz.
1: Hello, Dorian.
0: 120,000 pigs are due to be slaughtered in the next 10 days if a solution can't be found to the shortage of abattoir workers. Boris Johnson's response to this on Mar was to say that pigs were just going to be killed anyway, so whatevs. Um, How has this gone down with the meat-eating yet animal-loving British public? Hmm.
1: I think it will go down really, really badly. I don't think Johnson has quite realised that. It was very telling that on Mar, he referred to it as a hecatomb, which no one really will have known what it meant. I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up, and it turns out that it doesn't just mean killing, killing many, many oxen. It means sacrificing the oxen, which was an interesting choice of word given that the whole narrative this week has changed in terms of the supply chains and the labour shortages from being something that didn't really exist to something that we have to go through in order to get to the promised land after Brexit. (laughs) So, you know, if you see this slaughter of pigs as a hecatomb, as a a sacrifice then, you know, we can only hope that our great leader will be happy and the sight of pigs being shoveled into (laughs) furnaces will not repel the the public too much. The
0: road to the sunny uplands is Paved with the corpses of pigs, <laughs> apparently. Um, Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye. Hello, Ian. Hello. So far, only 127 haulage drivers have signed up for temporary visas to deliver fuel to garage forecourts. Johnson has called this a fascinating illustration of a global problem. <laughs> is this really global?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's the, the shortage is well, it's not global, but it certainly applies to lots and lots of countries. The thing is, what do you do in order to mitigate the worst effects of it? And what we have done is not a very sensible procedure. Which is that you start ending freedom of movement. You do almost nothing to improve sort of conditions in the country where people face very, very tough situations. And you also create a political environment in which they don't feel that welcome. Then when you make the offer of visas, you make it in this really kind of mean spirited way. That's like, well, you know, do come over as long as you like. But obviously the fucking home office is going to knock your, your door down on Christmas Day. Now extended, of course. But you, can, you get the general emotional sense of how much they value people from that. So, no, I mean, look, it's around the world, but you take policy, just like the rising gas prices, just like most of the stuff that we're seeing right now, it's around the world. But you take domestic policy decisions, which will have an impact in how flexible you are and how well you're able to manage these situations. And the ones we've taken were very poor indeed.
0: In shortage news I saw today, someone saying that the Christmas jumper company had informed that they may not have jumpers for Christmas because of
2: shortages. The sunlit uplands once again. <laughs> I think if you
0: are a Christmas jumper company, that's quite an important deadline to hit.
2: Get netting, guys. You guys slagged off my Christmas jumper. I remember we did a Christmas show and I wore my Batman Christmas jumper and there was there was, you know, a, a real undercurrent I think of skepticism about the jumper.
0: Christmas jumpers uh, a symbol of this nation's moral decline <laughs> I'm
2: along with what shorts for men. Yeah, shorts for men.
0: <laughs> Our guest this week uh, wearing hopefully neither Christmas jumper nor shorts <laughs> is the former justice secretary and MP for South West Hertfordshire in 2019 he quit the government following the election of Boris Johnson. The Tories who resigned the whip over the prospect of a no-deal Brexit, became known as the Gorkwood Squad. He is now head of public policy at the law firm McFarlane's. David Gork, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, pleasure to be with you. And is it an early happy birthday to you?
3: Yeah, it is slightly, yeah, well spotted. well spotted. Not that I particularly want to focus on birthday, as it's quite a significant one, this one. So, yeah.
0: You've given it away. Yeah. David, Lord Frost is threatening to trigger Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol unless progress is made by November, which happens to be when uh, Irish-American President Joe Biden is in town for COP26. Do you think he's bluffing on this or, or would he pull the trigger? I don't know. if they've threatened this so
3: many times and never happened i mean the reality is that article 16 isn't quite what people think article 16 is so it doesn't it's not a um in one bound we are free and you we can we we can do what we want you know there's all sorts of mechanisms and dispute resolution points and so on it all gets rather rather complicated so once you trigger article 16 you probably the, the the thing that will come across to quite a few people is uh that it's not that easy and you've still got a problem the government is obviously under pressure from the dup who are threatening to bring down um the northern irish uh assembly and government so uh, and, and, and look they're still banging away you know on, on trying to trying to turn this into a hostile point they still think that the more you threaten eventually the European Union will cave in. I really don't see that happening. I don't see that the EU particularly wants to reward what they see as bad behaviour.
0: David Frost's uh, rhetoric post Brexit seems to be uh, sort of far more militant than it was uh, during the negotiations. Did you have, uh, did your paths cross much in government?
3: Not very much. I think. I, th- I think I may have met him once when he was a special advisor to Boris Johnson as foreign secretary, where I had a meeting. Um, and the only other time was was on the day in which we we all lost the whip, uh, where the prime minister tried not very enthusiastically to dissuade us from voting against the government on stopping a no-deal Brexit and uh, David Frost was there and assuring us that if only we stuck to our guns uh, the EU would give way and 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 here we are again saying that as long as we stick to our guns the EU will give way (laughs) as 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 noticeably didn't happen over the negotiations over the TCA.
0: There is no plan B. Um, no. Also this week, the leaked Pandora papers have exposed massive tax avoidance around the world. And, and um, one of the names that comes up is Viktor Fedotov, a Russian tycoon who secretly co-owned a company accused of fraud. Has made donations to 34 Tory MPs and Labour is asking them to give the money back. Obviously, every MP has donors. In your experience, what what are the procedures for scrutinising um, donors for sort of hygiene <laughs>
3: Well, I, I I look at all these stories and wonder what I was doing wrong because no 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 Russians or anybody else came really <laughs> with big donations to me. I feel I wasn't perhaps I wasn't putting putting the effort in. We, we tended to rely on you know little old ladies giving us fifty pounds. So um, so I was you know something something's not right. I I, I think. Um, yeah, I was I was in the fortunate position of uh, of having a safe seat, which was then an unfortunate position when I stood against the Conservatives. Uh, <laughs> but it meant that we perhaps didn't make that much of an effort in finding big donors. We just raised money locally. So I, I'm, I'm not terribly well qualified mm. to say. But, look, I mean, some of my former colleagues perhaps were more gung-ho than others on who they would accept money from.
0: This week on the show, the Tories are in Manchester a week after Labour's conference. We'll discuss the major speeches and speak to David about his time in the party. Plus, succession isn't the only power struggle on TV this week. Blair and Brown, the new Labour revolution on the BBC, charts the rise and fall of the last two Labour Prime ministers. And on the extra bit for Patreon backers, Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram all went down on Monday evening. Would we miss them if they were gone for good? First this week, the Tory conference is in full swing. Earlier today, Boris Johnson delivered his leader's speech. Uh, Britain, what wonderful, just a gentle uh, Captain Hindsight, Britain. Um, Ian, beyond the the recondite vocabulary after dinner gags and general whiff-waff, was there substance to this speech?
2: No, no, there wasn't. Um, there was actually nothing, nothing of any real meaning at all. There was no structure. Last night, I was doing the papers last time, people were sort of talking, oh, you know, I wonder whether there be policy? Would there be policy in this speech? You get to the fucking speech and you're like, there's literally, it doesn't even have a fucking argument, let alone policies of any sort. There was absolutely nothing of that. The closest you got to it was the pre-brief lines, which basically say, you know, countries had low wages, low productivity, low investment because of immigration. Now, this is all part of a plan. It may look like fucking chaos of the highest order, but actually it's all part of a plan and now and I'm fixing it. thing is, that's, I think, quite telling because it means that the only meaningful part of the speech was composed entirely of fictional propositions. Like, Not one part of that argument holds up as true. It's not true that immigration reduces wages. The papers that they point to, there's no sort of 2015 Bank of England paper they point to with this, which, which is the one that, you know, Migration Watch and all the other sort of fucking, you know, toddlers screaming at the moon go for. Even there, I think it was 1.8% in, in low-paid uh, low workers as a decrease in the rise of their wages, not in the wage itself, in sectors where there was over 10% were composed of European workers. So you really have to be desperate. What you do find is that middle wages, even um, sort of lower middle wages, um, have increased because of immigration. We also see, if you look at investment levels in the UK, business investment, I mean, it was soaring in the period leading up to and after EU expansion, when EU migrants came over to Britain, it declined during the financial crash. It then soars again until what? 2016, when fucking Brexit happens. And then you see investments suddenly stop oh because God. everyone's like, well, we don't know what the fucking regulatory structure is going to be. We don't know what the trading relationship is going to be. So I mean, whichever way you look at his argument, it is false. And for the vast majority of it, it wasn't even, you know, Karl Popper will be turning in his grave because most of the shit he was saying wasn't even fucking falsifiable. It was just gibbered, Nonsense, like like a human jelly spitting in your face for forty five minutes.
0: Well, what what it reminded me of was a, a friend when we were very young. Uh, a friend of mine did a best man speech. Nobody'd done a best man speech for, him, and he thought what he had to do was just jokes all the time, and it didn't go down very well because he forgot to actually say anything about the bride and groom. And it was like I think jokes are good in politics when they can punctuate uh, a point, but you just need to be sort of like flinging them off and making points solely to get to a joke, and it seems to sort of confirm, handily confirm, Starmer's diagnosis last week that he's a, he's a trivial man, but does it matter? Is, is, tr- is being a trivial man working for him?
2: Well, OK, it's worked so far, OK? And before, and what's the distinction? Before, you know, let's take the referendum result. You're talking about a very distant international institution. Most people don't get it. It doesn't directly affect their lives. You're talking about events that will take place years and years from now. In the general election, you are talking about, right, we just get this bit done and then we move on to something else. It's the ending of this bit and so it's future looking. Mm. Over and over, that kind of bonhomie has, that kind of um, op- that optimism people are always fucking banging on about, you know, is to do with the future or something distant. Things are now different. It doesn't mean that things will change fundamentally. They might not. It might be that all of our worst fucking nightmares are true and that people don't even notice the change in their wallet, the change in the money in their pocket, as long as, you know, their uncle on fucking Facebook is saying a certain amount of gibberish. It might be that's the case, but there is a qualitative difference now. Qualitative difference is he is talking about your quality of life. He is talking about how much money you have to spend, how rich you feel. And over right now, what we're seeing as a result of leaving the EU, putting up trade barriers with our largest partner, as a result of a labour shortage, as a result of things that are not to do with Brexit, like high gas prices, um, we are seeing a real decline in quality of living and, of course, inflation in the background of all this. And then certain government decisions, raising taxes, cutting benefits. So if he wants to keep on playing that game of I'm optimistic... It doesn't really matter if anything I say is true. So far, he's gotten away with it. But right now, it's about the money in your pocket. And there, I don't think optimism and I don't think post truth politics will have quite the same purchase that it has before. David, I was trying to think if
0: uh, Johnson would be behaving very differently if he was under real political pressure. Do you think he feels, uh, you know, from watching this speech, he doesn't have to try harder because he considers Labour so weak at the moment? Or, or is, is this all that he can do?
3: Well, first of all, can, you, can I just say I'm I'm now very worried about the best man speech I delivered 23 years
2: ago.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but now, yeah, I see where I went wrong. Um, no, I I thought. Boris Johnson was pretty relaxed over the course of this conference. You know, he seemed to be enjoying himself in his, you know, his media interviews, which, by the standards of other politicians, were kind of very good and convincing. But, but he did come across as as relaxed and enjoying himself and bantering away. And the same with his speech today. And, and I think that is in part because. There's a lack of of competition. You know, the Conservatives are doing remarkably well in the opinion polls, and let's remember, most of us assumed that the Conservatives were going to have a pretty bumpy period over the course of the autumn, and that may well still happen. But they've announced the big tax increase. We we assume that is the big tax increase of the autumn, breaking the manifesto pledge. Uh, In my view, they needed to break that pledge. But nonetheless, you might have expected a reaction against that. We have got shortages at the petrol stations. And people remember 2000 when Blair's opinion poll lead disappeared, albeit very briefly. We've got shortages elsewhere in supermarkets and, and what have you. And yet the Conservatives continue to have a fairly comfortable lead and and you, know, you can accuse boris johnson of being complacent but you know maybe there is cause for his complacency because up till now it seems there's almost nothing that the conservatives can do that drops their support you know much below 38 39 for for more than a day or two
0: Ros, I want to ask you about other aspects of the conference, but uh, just to start with, do you have anything to add about the, the speech? Your reaction seemed to be uh, a howl of despair.
1: Yeah, it was really. I, I just, uh, it was, it was, it was basically an extended telegraph column. That was what it was. The same tedious old puns and rhetorical tricks and laboured old kind of this parochial view of Britishness, which is, you know, the Telegraph worldview in which Johnson understands so well and plays to, so well to. And, you know, we got to the stage of Build Back Beaver. I thought, is this it? Is this what we have come to? You know, is this what the, the Prime Minister of the UK thinks is amusing? And is that who we are now? Is that all we are? Is that the best he can do after spending the whole of my adult life scrambling for money and power is to get up in front of the Tory party and make a joke about building back Beaver? That's all that he has. I am so tired of it. And so, you know, I I see journalists like, as Johnson used to be himself, saying, oh, it was a great speech, it was optimistic, it was so Boris. It was not a great speech. It was just Johnson. There was nothing. As Ian says, there was no policy, there was no real content. It was the same old riff. And it will get old. It will get start getting old soon because he's got nothing new there.
0: Um, Hugo Rifkin pointed out that the, his Columbus joke was uh, nicked off Malcolm Rifkind in 2005, who may have taken it from Charles Kennedy oh, several wow. years earlier. So not even the jokes are new.
1: It's just, it was it was just pathetic, pathetic to see a grown man standing up there with all the power and influence he has. And it all has to be a joke. Anyway, sorry. The
2: only thing that makes me sort of okay as the world degrades is that I find a tremendous sense of emotional reassurance when Ros gets really cross about things. <laughs> so I just always think, well, I mean, this is terrible, but on the other hand, be- later on today...
0: Beaver was definitely the trigger word. I think that was the point she's just like, no. Not having this. Um, New Culture Secretary Nadine Doris gave the conference some red meat attacking the Charity Commission's so-called woke agenda that word again um, and saying the BBC <laughs> is staffed by people whose mum and dad worked there Boris Johnson then quickly called the BBC a great national institution now in his speech there was some anti-woke nonsense with the Woke etc but do people like Doris enable him to some extent to play the good cop on, on culture war issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, just as Pretty Patel enables him to a limited extent to pay, play the good cop on um, uh, home office issues, it's always useful to have someone to the right of you, to some, someone who's prepared to say things more crass even than you can manage. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, I mean, there was there was a nod to the culture wars. As you say, there was no attempt whatsoever to, to engage with any of the tough stuff around the culture wars. Clearly, it was all just Winston Churchill, insult to our statues, let's not undermine British history. Uh, and, and that was as far as it went, which was uh, summed up the entire international intellectual content of the speech.
0: It is quite mad that if you are interested in those issues at all, that there are particular sort of there are crunch points. There are mm. some difficulties around, you know, sort of free speech mm. in particular. And yet the debate as conducted by the Tories is not interested in any of that in any way that might solve anything. It's just a kind of big nebulous sort of poison gas called wokeness.
1: Well, it's just an opportunity to uh, watch the left tearing themselves apart, as increasingly they are over some issues. We're always
2: happy to do that.
1: And, you know, and, and point and laugh. I mean,
2: I mean, it's worth mentioning, of course, that there were free speech policies at this conference that Pretty Patel went and launched a second assault on protests, which is... Quite startling in its breadth and its severity, with what are essentially sort of protest banning orders. They've been proposed before. The Home Office had turned them down in 2019. They were proposed by the Met Police, Home Office looked at them and went, "Fucking, you can't be serious, mate." And what you're basically talking about is is telling someone they can't go on a protest in a preemptive way because they might cause disruption in future. It's too much for the Home Office then. It was too much for senior, several senior police officers who were sat on the round table. It was too much for Her Majesty's Inspector of Contabulary. And now, out the fucking box, Pretty Patel popped it out during her conference speech and is implementing these things. I and mean, these things are minority... I'm, I'm looking at Dorian, so I'm not going to call them, you know, thought police or Orwellian because I'm, I'm scared that I'm not going to get the term right and he's going <laughs> to fucking pick me up on it. But it's very, very minority report, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you can yeah, Thank you very much indeed. Um... I mean, it's really fucking disastrous stuff. Of course, you know, I'm not going to fucking, there's no point making the point of million. You know, if, if the party gave a flying fuck about free speech, it would not be passing that kind of autocratic, draconian measure. I mean, by any, on any stretch of the imagination, it's an intolerable thing to be doing. But of course, they absolutely do not. And the only use for free speech is, as Rod says, to batter the left. Rod's levelling up
0: Secretary and nightclub ledge. Michael Gove uh, has uh, been talking about house building, watering down his predecessor Robert Jenrick's policies um, and shifting the focus to the North away from angry Tory voters in the South. Is this just the power of nimbyism or is there, or do you buy sort of his argument that that, that we should be sort of concentrating more on the North?
1: Certainly the opinion polls in the last week have suggested that the Tories do have a bit of a problem with the Red Wall, uh, that there is a bit of a move against them there. So that may have been noted also. It was very clear in this speech that Johnson has taken note of what take- happened in Chesham and Amersham and has decided that that must not happen again. Um, the One of the big passages in the speech was about Stoke Poges, which is where Gray's elegy may have been set and is a place in, I think, Buckinghamshire or Berkshire, in that in that part of the world, and it was it was basically um, saying that it, it was a signal to people living in the home counties and similar parts of Britain that their beautiful views will not be threatened by Conservative policy. He was mm-hmm. pretty explicit about that. And then there was a rant about how people like to be able to paint their own front door, which was just the most e- extraordinary cop out of any kind of meaningful engagement with the housing crisis in this country. <laughs>
2: I don't
1: want you to stop talking. I really. <laughs> I can. I can. I can carry on. Uh, I will. I will pause. Um,
0: David, like you say, the the, the mood at the uh, the conference seemed uh, rather sort of jolly and relaxed. Certainly compared to Labour's last week. How was it during the the sort of the Brexit wars? Did you have quite a kind of uh, a, a sort of chilly welcome in in those later conferences?
3: i wouldn't say jolly and relaxed would be how i characterize it but, but to be to be fair i mean i i went along to the party conference in 2019 having had the whip withdrawn um but i thought i'd still go along and spoke at various fringe events and, and my my contributions weren't um particularly helpful or designed to be helpful for the for, for the government and i have to say the response i got was pretty civilized actually it was it was it was um no, nothing like as hostile as I would have expected so i I think you know to be to be fair to the Conservative party and its members I don't think they get quite as wound up as as the Labour party does with each other at least that wasn't my experience i i you know I found I could go there without being harangued even though I was you know very much the the enemy within or, or, or essentially the enemy without at that point
0: You've said that the traditional Tory values of low regulation, low taxation, being pro-business have been upended by the pandemic. Obviously, there are there are very strong practical reasons for that. How much of that is here to stay? Do you think?
3: Yeah, I think it is here to stay. I mean, I think it, it partly. I mean, it's not just the pandemic. I think even if we hadn't had the pandemic, I think there is a bit of a realignment going on in British politics. I think Boris Johnson in that, or at least has has recognised that, and so the focus is yes, being anti woke and more nationalists, and and less focused on economics because the coalition of support the conservatives have now is less based on economics. It's it's in truth less coherent on economics it you know it covers people who've traditionally voted for left-wing parties so it can raise taxes and spend it on the nhs and most conservative voters are are absolutely happy with 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 that i think to be fair that's where wider public opinion is as as well it is changing and i think you know because that's where the votes are and the conservative party is very good at, at pursuing where the votes are it can change itself it can transform itself very quickly it's part of the reason why it's normally in an office and other parties aren't
0: yeah no it's annoying um <laughs> for me um nice to me that sunak is is popular largely because he's done things that he didn't really want to do um which is sort of uh, handing out a lot of money you know to sort of help people through the pandemic he obviously has more kind of um austere inclinations if he was allowed to do exactly what he wanted, do you think his star would fall?
3: No, I'm not sure about that. It, but Within the Conservative Party, I mean, look, I, I think you're right. He is a much more traditional Conservative. I thought his his speech was redolent of a, of a George Osborne speech, uh, you know, from ten years ago. He was making the case about fiscal responsibility. I think, you know, even if you take a, 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 a sort of fairly austere fiscally responsible view there was a very very good case when the pandemic uh, happened to start spending money because what you wanted to do was avoid scarring and the economy would recover more quickly if you could protect it as much as possible so i'm i'm not sure that what he did as chancellor from from march twenty twenty onwards was necessarily against his will. I think it was a it was a sort of fairly pragmatic assessment that even if you are fiscally conservative in those particular circumstances. Um, you should start spending money you should protect people from unemployment you know this is a sort of one-off event and you spend money to see us through that process and then you have to unwind it um, relatively quickly and I think yeah that and that's where he has been quite striking is that you know he's wanted to get a move on part of that I think is is electoral timing Uh, you know you don't want to start the the rewinding process a year or so before a general election you want to have got that out the way earlier on but I I don't think it's incompatible to be both fiscally conservative and believe that in exceptional circumstances you take exceptional measures.
0: And finally Dominic Raab is in one of your previous roles at the Department of Justice Um, who sort of prioritised the issue of violence against women following several other cases. Good, said that misogyny is also bad when women directed against men. Bad. What do you expect from him? I think the
3: Interesting thing with what Dominic will do is where he goes on human rights and judicial review. I don't think he's going to be a sort of particularly sort of knee-jerk, hang him and flog him, increase sentences type of justice secretary. I don't think that's that's actually where he is. And you know, we've got Priti Patel to do all of that. So, uh, uh, um, and I think he's going to be in the position of having a bit more money to spend. I think the MAJ will get more resources in the spending review. The early indications from what I can see is, you know, he is looking to reopen the Human Rights Act. I do wonder whether part of the reason Boris Johnson sent him there was because he felt that Robert Buckland was too small-c conservative and not combative enough. And I do wonder whether this is going to become a, a, a bit more of, issue, of an issue given that the, you know, the judicial review reforms have petered out into not very much and the report that i think was going to be published in the next month or so from uh, from from sir peter gross i suspect wasn't going to be that radical when it comes to the human rights Act. and i think that's where uh, dominic Raab is going to get his teeth into this and that's perhaps where he's going to you know pick up some support on the right positioning himself um you know potentially quite nicely within the Conservative Party. Uh, And I think that that is going to prove to be a bit of a battle.
0: Next up, we feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. The BBC has released a new five-part documentary called Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution. It begins with the election defeat of Michael Foote in 1983, when both Blair and Brown were elected for the first time and charts their rise and fall. You can binge the whole thing on iPlayer if you so desire. Um, Roz, I've watched the first two episodes. It seems very much received wisdom and familiar faces. Um, has it told you anything new or is it just a sort of good uh, bluffer's guide?
1: It was fascinating to watch Madelson's and Blair's and Brown's expressions when they were talking about different different past events. And you occasionally, there was, a, there was a moment when Peter Mandelson in the second doc was talking about how he felt sidelined after the election in 1997. And you could just see the kind of, the, van, the slightly embarrassed vanity passing across his face. And mm. it, I, I, had, I hadn't realised that he felt sidelined in that way, because I've always seen Mandelson as key to the new Labour project, but apparently he did. And just, just seeing those, and occasionally when you saw Blair talking about what was really discussed at that meal when they decided that Blair would run and Brown would be his chancellor. That, that was, those, those were the really fascinating things for me. And also, I think what came through that, was that Brown saw Blair as a tool for Labour to gain power, but himself as the essence of Labour. And that was always his abiding sense. And that is why he insisted on taking over and would not relent on that, because in a way, I think he saw the he saw Blair as the pr- natural prelude, the pr- the preparing the ground for a Brown premiership, and that was a slightly different way of looking at it that I hadn't thought of before.
0: I mean, that's the main, that's the documentary's main asset, isn't it? It's like a mm. documentary about a band where you've got you've got the full original lineup, the yeah. singer and the guitarist that didn't get on. But, <laughs> you know, there's 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 no filler. Um but it does seem fixated on those tensions, um the so-called TBGBs. And what i won't notice is that modern critiques of New Labour, particularly from the left, sort of rarely mention that personality stuff. So is that sort of focus, is that narrative focus still useful?
1: Yeah, it is. It's vital actually, because we forget about it now. But at the time, during the noughties, it was the way that political journalists talked about the whole New Labour project. It was how they it was the lens through which they Discussed everything that was done. It was Tony versus Gordon, and sometimes that was a misleading way to to put it. But it was it was a constant, and of course, you were in a situation that time when you had ten years with the same prime minister, with the same chancellor, which is quite unusual mm. in, in modern politics. And so that was in, that was the relentless focus. But that was actually a useful thing for Labour because Brown, in the narrative, was always pulling Blair back. From too much you know from moving too far to the center, from making what Brown regarded as unwise decisions, the euro would be an obvious one where Brown insisted that we didn't join the euro for example didn't didn't you know didn't happen over Iraq, but there was that Brown was that kind of social conscience of the party, and he was vital to the way labor. Mm. saw itself. And I think Labour itself would have been unhappy if it had just been Tony Blair with some sort of hegemony at the top. You needed Brown to kind of almost pull him down and ground him. And on reflection, that was very much the way the relationship with the party worked.
0: Ian, how different do you think it would have been if Brown had become leader after John Smith's death in 1994?
2: Oh, fuck knows. I mean, you never know how any of that shit's going to work out. You can't. Because, you know, you look at him and so much, I think, of what went wrong with Brown when he was prime minister was a result of the frustrated ambitions he'd had for so long. So you kind of got there and you're at the tail end. It just feels like you're getting to the party when everyone else is kind of leaving. Mm. He was frustrated. And I just think you just don't know if he was frustrated. So I was quite impressed. I was by the way impressed by how good looking he was when he was younger. You don't really think of Gordon Brown as a looker, but they had like this stuff when he's at uni with this long haired stuff going yeah, yeah. on over. And I was just like, fucking hell, you're like a proper little Scottish Jaguar. It's like young Alistair here.
0: Darling. It's a weird <laughs> kind of <laughs> Chancellor thing.
2: Yeah.
0: But is it I mean is it useful to think in terms of Blair I mean everybody has an ism now. Everybody has ites and isms. But is it useful to think in terms of Blairism and Brownism as sort of
2: different schools of thought? Or was it does it really his personality no 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 i mean politically look the difference between those two was like what a twentieth of the difference that we've seen politically over the course of this tory administration over the last 10 years if you were to think from cameron to may to johnson hmm. the distinctions there are, s- are like great deserts compared to the kind of the minuscule matters you sort i mean if you remember when he came in one of the fir- brown came in one of the first things he did he's got rid of those super casino ideas there was always a bit more of a kind of slightly religious element to him. And you could hear that in his rhetoric, that he, he always has that kind of religious sort of chatter in the background. He also, you know, he got on pretty well with the mail, actually, because, you know, on stuff like, they actually reclassified cannabis. Fucking disastrous. First thing to do was to get rid of one of the very few liberal things that Tony Blair had sort of done on criminal justice. But again, he was pretty much in line in line with the mail there. So there was that. But ultimately, you know, what, what's the meat of politics? It was, you know, their, their acceptance of... The basic laissez-faire argument was essentially, you know, state should stay out of the way of the market. And what we're going to do is we're going to redistribute on the back end, make things more equal that way. That was the great compromise with sort of Thatcherism or, you know, high X. All that. And the two of them were basically on the same page. I mean, you might shuffle a couple of angles one way or the other, but they were basically the same thing.
0: Uh, now, some people thought it was a big deal for Starmer to celebrate Labour's achievements between 97 and 2010. Yes, how remarkable was him? Um, but to my mind, and had many criticisms of New Labour at, at the time, but to my mind, Blair was better than the last uh, four PMs. Brown was one of the, the great chancellors. Is it simply a ruck that makes so many people in Labour embarrassed to talk about that government? Because it, it does seem sort of weird to me how taboo the only, government since, the only Labour government since the 70s is to yeah. people in Labour.
2: That's so interesting, isn't it? I, but I also feel, I mean, I don't think it is just a rock. I think there's something deeper about, you know, what it is to be a professional politician and someone who presents in a certain way rather than with conviction. The, the whole idea of triangulation as a successful strategy is inimical to the kind of, you know, fire and brimstone from the heart, you know. You still
0: hear politics. someone in a suit as an insult. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless
2: it's ill-fitting and brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I also think that we get it a bit wrong. I think I get it a bit wrong. You know, I've started to slip into this thing as well. I'm just thinking, well, it's just Iraq. But you know, look at all the things that labor, New Labour got right. What I forget is, I mean, obviously all the civil liberties stuff, which was fucking, which if you remember was off the scale at the time. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, the stuff they were suggesting, you were really like, you know, you're, you're really lacking a grasp of what it is that makes this country a free and generous place to live in. Like basic, basic principles here. And then also, if if you remember the kind of poison they would pump out to the press, especially Blunkett and a few others, on especially asylum seekers back then, and it wasn't really towards sort of economic immigrants. It was mostly towards asylum seekers, and it was fucking poison. So a lot of it. I think at the time, you didn't necessarily always feel that you were living under that progressive a government because so much of the messaging was done in a certain way. And by the way, I think that that's a problem and something to learn for for the future of sort of a progressive politics, because it's not enough just to be doing the stuff because they did do the stuff. You know, Britain became a more equal place. It funded its public services. It was a kind of place. But the messaging never tried to take on those central arguments because we'd never taken on those arguments on things like immigration You know, on things like the way the Home Office <laughs> behaves. It then became quite easy to shatter us when it came to things like Brexit, because we, we really weren't used to actually making a fucking argument against those propositions. David,
0: Johnson did uh, talk about uh, overturning decades of drift and dither in his speech, which presumably it involves quite a few Tory governments. But he wasn't specific. Have Tories ever repudiated their record or sections of the party ever repudiated their record in government like this? Or is that a Labour thing?
3: No, it's much more of a Labour thing. Um I, I, I look looking from the outside, it seems to me that the Labour Party is really quite uncomfortable with power. And and the thing that they've almost never forgiven Tony Blair for was winning three elections with massive majorities. And so I think it's broader than Iraq. Um, you know, it was it was a sort of It was a pact with the devil as they saw it. You know, we back this guy because he's going to win, but we don't really like him very much and we're not sure about what he's doing and is he really one of us? And the fact that Blair didn't seem to be such a tribal figure In contrast to Brown was part of the reason why he was he was so successful. I think, and and, you know, I'm struck. I've watched the first couple of episodes as as well, and you know, it's still the case with Gordon Brown. You feel well, you know, it really should have been him in 1994, and it was all a bit of a shock. But I, I was working as a parliamentary researcher for a Conservative MP in 1994 when John Smith died, and I remember talking to a colleague, you know, hours after the news broke, and you know, just another conservative researcher and I remember him saying if if Blair gets this we're we we screwed, we're completely finished. So it was obvious it was obvious to you know to junior twenty-two-year-old conservative researchers that Blair Blair was the one to 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 fear, and he was a much more formidable opponent in my view than than Gordon Brown could ever be. It wasn't just that Gordon Brown came at you know after a long period in office, and governments get tired, and the voters get bored. Um, he, of course, he would still have won in nineteen ninety seven, but but Blair was you know as, as as a as a vote gatherer was was a class above Brown in my view, and I think most most conservatives would say that.
2: There's a real, um, there's a really weird feeling watching that thing. I don't know if you guys had it, but it was just—it's the scale of the people, you know—that it's quite a uniquely, acutely depressing feeling. It's just they're so big, mm. you know. Like, I mean, you look at Blair, you look at Brown, and, and not just them. I mean, even the, you know the people around them. I mean, there's interviews there with Kinnock. Mm. This, it's the scale of these guys. These are these are heavyweight guys, and then to have that to be watching that while you're watching the fucking. Just this Vindaloo in Manchester of the Tories, just the, there's this blithering shite of just the, the most vacuous, meaningless people who have no interest in any principles at all or, or sustained sort of intellectual thought. It's just a deeply dispiriting feeling. I guess the only thing that cheered me up about it a bit was some of those sort of early interviews. They have early interviews with Blair, sort of well before he got power, the same with Brown. Hmm. They still look quite young. You know, and they're still, they're not quite there yet. They're not that guy yet. And that kind of gives you a bit of faith when you look at sort of the Labour front bench now, where you're like, okay, well, maybe, you know, give it a few years. And you like, you can imagine someone like Lisa Nandy, I think having that kind of gravitas. There are some people you can sort of imagine it is I'm not saying that there's a wealth of options there, but, but there's some people you think, well, maybe give it a bit of time. It's not necessarily that we just live in this utterly poverty stricken era.
0: David, at the time then, like you said, you um I mean, you weren't elected till two thousand and five, but you were working in the Tory Party in various uh, capacities during that whole period. So in nineteen ninety seven, or perhaps even before, like you said, because you could see it coming down the pipe. I mean, how long did you think the Tories were going to be out of office for?
3: Oh, I don't think I mean I was I probably was more optimistic than than some from a Conservative perspective. Um I'm not sure. That you know, we would have said, "Oh, it's it's, it's going to be you know, thirteen years or so," largely because Labour governments hadn't lasted that long in the past. Um, and it was so. So you sort of start. You start off in well, you know, of course, Labour they'll immediately they'll crash the economy, <laughs> and then we'll come in and clear up the pieces, and so on. And then, and then year after year went by, and it didn't happen. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, so no, they, they, they. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it happened in the end, but but it wasn't all wasn't their fault. Um, so so now I I I think you know there was a sort of assumption that we'll come back, but in truth, I think if you were closer to it and perhaps more mature than I was in 1997, you could see you know, the Conservatives weren't going to win back in in, in 2001. You know, it was such a crushing defeat um, that the best you could hope for was you know, a bit of a recovery, and and we didn't even do that. And that meant, of course, after 2001, that it was highly unlikely that we would you know, come back in 2005.
0: Well, just as Blair, I mean, kind of, as Ian said, built on on certain uh, elements of Thatcherism, Cameron didn't sort of entirely under, unwind everything that Labour did, and certain things are very uh, difficult to unwind, even if you want to. Do you think that new Labour's legacy is substantial in 2021? Perhaps
3: not as substantial as it should be, because, OK, the, the Conservatives government didn't repudiate everything that blair had done but the labour party did pretty well so you know not just jeremy corbyn ed milliband as well so there was a bit of a sense of you know no one no one defended the record of of the labour government for some time and you know that's why it's striking last week keir starmer did do it because we've not really heard it very much. And and that makes it harder for, for, for that government to have a, a legacy. I mean, I, I suspect, in all honesty, it's going to come back a bit more into fashion in the way that, you know, Tony Blair's reputation has been enhanced over the last year or so, because he's, you know, he's looked like the natural leader of this country and spoke a lot of sense on COVID and been very constructive and I think you know there is there is the comparison point as, as as well, and there is some justice in what Ian is saying. My sense is we're probably in a period of time where New Labour's record. I speak as someone who who was obviously you know, didn't support them and, and campaigning for another party, but I, I suspect the reputation for for New Labour is probably going to be enhanced over over this coming period.
0: So so, Ros, again, much like a music documentary, uh, a lot of the big hits are in the early phase. So minimum wage, Bank of England independence, Good Friday agreement, devolved parliaments coming up. Um, obviously, we haven't finished the series yet. But why do you think Labour, with this huge mandate, sort of fell short, particularly in its, in its second term? Why, why were there not more?
1: Well, I think there was a huge kind of head of esteem that built up around these big constitutional reforms because Scottish Parliament's a huge thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. Labour has basically, ironically, sowed the seeds of its own inability to win a general election now by setting up the Scottish Parliament. There was a huge sense of momentum and then, of course the fact that Tony Blair got so caught up in foreign policy and became so, you see the beginnings of his fascination with America and with Clinton, which seemed to move fairly seamlessly to a a fascination with George Bush. Mm. And when that started, when he felt, I think, it was almost as if he'd achieved all he wanted to do, and so he needed to move on to a bigger stage to do more. And, of course, the arrogance that came with the Iraq war, was ultimately his, his downfall. And then you had the constant attritional thing where Gordon Brown demanded that he stand down and he eventually did because there was basically no alternative, but there was very little enthusiasm for Gordon Brown outside the Labour Party itself as a prime minister and then began that inexorable decline that began, you know, that, that despite his handling of the financial crisis, which was obviously very good, that ended with that mm. bloody woman. And the disaster of of that campaign,
0: Ian. One thing Blair does get across in this, both current day Tony Blair and young Tony Blair, uh, is how hard it is for Labour to win. And on this occasion, he cracked it. But it's not 1997 anymore. Johnson isn't major. We've got we've got Brexit. We've got the SNP. We've got all kinds of demographic shifts. Obviously, there are people in Labour who who sort of go, "Well, look to the winner. Look to the three time winner for for tips." Is there anything in New Labour's
2: playbook that is still useful despite everything that's changed? Oh, absolutely, shitloads of it. I mean, first I mean, first of all, the bit that's hardest to replicate and that uh, they're not replicating now, which is just basically charisma, which is part of that story of the Blair Brown thing, which is one of them is charismatic and it's fucking superficial as fuck. And it is also true. And at the moment, let's not pretend that there's that that's something that's really operating on the Labour front bench at the moment in any position really. Um, Then there's triangulation. Now, you do see them operating on that. Why is it the Labour are talking about crime all the time? Why is it that, you know, Keir Starmer and David Lammy are writing in The Sun? On crime And actually doing a pretty good job. It's not just because it's not really because you think you can necessarily win on those, but you can fucking neutralize them. And that is a very, very good start. Right? That makes sense. It's a good policy. The other one was the, the importance of immediately understandable communications that was done primarily through symbols, getting rid of red flags and replacing them with red roses. It's, it's a kind of genius, actually. I mean, it seems kind of cliched or whatever, but it makes sense. It's good. And trying to make it so that people have a very clear idea and can say immediately what it is that you are about. Now, I think a lot of people could do that for the Tories right now. I think they probably struggle to do it with Labour. But the thing that stuck with me that Blair said in that documentary was he said, the core thing about politics is you've got to have the initiative. And that I just think is is this tremendously meaningful, um, perceptive comment. Because... By that, it's to be on the front foot. Now look at where Starmer is right now with the with the shortages, with the with the cost of living crisis. Okay, mm. can you possibly say that he has the initiative? Fuck no. Because mm. basically the idea is you just step back and you're like, well, they're taking a pounding, so we'll let them take the pounding. If he talks about it at all, it was Starmer. What what did he say? Four or five sentences at the beginning of his speech, and that's pretty much the most I've heard from him mm. on this subject. You've got to set the narrative. And you sort of feel from Labour right now that they're putting the building blocks there in order to start telling the narrative, but the narrative never fucking comes. So honestly, you look at it, I think there's a lot to learn. Of course, all the stuff can change, but the core basic units of how you do a successful campaign are being expressed in, in that documentary. And I think, to be honest, I really fucking hope that Keir Starmer and the rest of them are sat down on their sofas watching it. I did like the bit where
0: where Alistair Campbell just goes to uh, shows Pete Mansell a piece of paper and goes... What about New Labour, New Britain? And Manson goes, "Yeah,"
1: and you just like do <laughs> with a bit of that.
0: Yeah, no, sure. um, So Starmer has to rebuild after a, bat- a sort of 1983 style battering, but obviously, back then the toys had only been in power for four years, and you know, now you can't you can't wait another what, fourteen years. Do you think, from watching this, is he is he a Blair, a Smith, or a Kinnock?
2: I think that's, you know, that's a fucking point. The, 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 the next Don't question... knock my question. I can't anymore. help <laughs> it. Answer the question. It. You've got to make them better. You're disrespecting my question. <laughs> the second question that I just happened, I, just, I can't yeah. be answering this. Um, it's fucking unbelievable. <laughs> okay, look, I, I get... David's polite.
0: He's a gaff, He comes in <laughs> and answers the question.
2: <laughs> okay, look. I was a politician. We're not supposed to answer questions. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Okay, right. Um... I get why people look at him and think he's a kinnick. And if you look at the electoral arithmetic and the the scale of the mountain, it makes sense. And if you probably look at the sort of attributes, I think, of Starmer sort of doing the right thing, steady as she goes, repairing the bits, isn't setting anyone's heart to flutter, then probably you'd think that looks quite kinnicky. Um, However, the next election, I don't think is going to come down to that. It is going to come down to who is it that the British people want sort of associate with the moment? Now, up until now, it's optimism is the guy that comes around, he's all funny, ha ha ha, you know, has a bit of drink, tries to shag your wife, whatever. Okay, that's the guy that they want right now. If things keep on getting very severe, very chaotic, they don't get the stuff that they want. If they feel that their quality of life is in decline, then maybe just maybe you suddenly turn around and go, you know, the guy that's a little bit dull, but looks pretty competent, looks like he might actually be able to fix this shit, then he can have it. And I think that that stuff operates, we have this tendency to project back onto figures and assume that the past sort of repeats itself in certain ways. I think the reality is it comes down to that question. And that won't have any sort of that will not be caused by virtue of personalities or the events that have taken place in the past.
0: I just want to quickly ask uh, all three of you that somebody, possibly Blair in the documentary, describes 1997 as a sea change. You know, you've got 179 seat majority Amazing, I don't remember this. Blair had an approval rating of 93% at one point. Fucking hell. Could that ever happen again, do you think, for any UK-wide party? Like a swing in power of that magnitude?
1: It would be very hard because social media has made it much, much harder. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. David, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I, I agree with Ros. I think we're, we're, we're more fragmented. Um, I speak actually, if that was true, because at the time I was part of the seven percent, which shows how <laughs> consistently <laughs> out of touch I am. To
0: a small, a cosy little part of the yeah. electorate. <laughs> Now it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week we level up and level down features of the political landscape. This week, it's our guest David Gork's turn. David, what do you have for us?
2: David, if you go for underrated Tony Blair and overrated William Hague, you get all the prizes for the next year. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I could have reversed it, I suppose. <laughs> now, I was going to go, like, This is slightly familiar territory. Um, underrated, I think events of the last few uh, weeks just... Maybe not in this gathering, but freedom of movement was underrated it wasn 't the sort of it was the price we paid uh, for EU membership. It was actually quite a good thing, uh, and I think that 's come across. I speak as someone who felt that we probably did have to end freedom of movement if we were to in any way honor the referendum result, but freedom of movement was a good thing for this country, and now we 're missing it, and that 's all become very apparent and What I was going to say for um overrated and we did touch on this earlier is 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 article 16 but as you asked me about <laughs> Article 16 yeah. earlier I, I i couldn't avoid answering your question as, as in the spirit of this podcast uh, so i i think um yeah it's it's overrated by those who are demanding that we trigger article 16 or those who are threatening to trigger article 16 because um when it comes down to it it's not we are not uh, free with one bound from everything that this country signed up to uh, when we uh, agreed the withdrawal agreement, and, and and then subsequently when we reconfirmed the terms of that. So that's 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 uh, overrated by those who thinks it's uh, going to transform the situation.
0: Excellent. That's good, good Remainy stuff for the base, <laughs> for the podcast <laughs> base.
3: Slightly more than seven percent.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Now it's time for but your emails. This week, Rachel Oxenholm says, though I mostly agree with their aims, the Insulate Britain campaigners take the prize for carrying out a protest that will turn people against their cause. What are the best examples of a sweet spot between conventional protest that nobody notices and just annoying the general populace? Who should Insulate Britain take inspiration from? Ross, I was really struck by an interview on well, I saw it on Twitter. So I can't remember who it was with, but um, one of the protesters. And, then, and, and the interviewer was just going, well, look, everybody's really angry with you. <laughs> like, they hate you. Mm. Um, and this woman can't get to the hospital to see her mum. And she just goes, well, what else can we do? Well, at least we've got, we're getting people's you know, attention. Mm. What other option do we have? So you can see why they are, they are doing this. But, but what is a good way to get attention without blocking off all the
1: roads? There's no such thing. I mean, it's just not. That's not. That's not part of what protest is. I mean, insulate Britain is fascinating because it's an entirely reasonable demand which is sensible which will actually be uh, would would be far more useful than you know flashy evs and all the kind of lovely infrastructure which johnson is always touting insulating stuff is boring it's mm-hmm. not sexy but actually it's really important and it will save a huge you know huge amounts of energy it just doesn't involve anything that people you know really want to do and they worry about how expensive it is but it's a extremely prosaic cause which is being demanded in this incredibly in, for many people, in intru- annoying and intrusive way. I mean, that is the nature of protest, that it has to get in your face. There is no sweet spot. And that's, I don't say that because I necessarily think the most successful protests are the ones that change things because that's not always even the reason for protest. Protest is about solidarity. It's about making you feel that there are other people who feel the same way as you and who are prepared to go as far as you are doing in order to support their beliefs. The actually achieving the aim is is not even the most important thing. So I I, I I'm sorry I can't so answer they, that question. So, <laughs> so they do. So you, do you think they're
0: succeeding then in in their narrow goal?
1: They are succeeding in in creating a kind of solidarity between themselves that show that that is unifying and which is. A defiance of what you might call gesture politics, of hobby politics, of signing pol- uh, petitions online, of hanging out—and you know—they yeah. are they are out there. They are on the M25. They are not just whinging about stuff on Twitter. And that is, I'm sorry, really important. I know it's really annoying, but it's hugely important.
0: Ian, when you look at sort of polling from the from the 50s and 60s of uh, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, you actually find that that most of the American public were incredibly annoyed by him and thought, you know, that there was, there was huge opposition which has sort of been written out of, of history. So is there a kind, is there a sweet spot where you just
2: get to annoy people but not too much or you annoy the right people? I do think there's kind of a difference between setting out to get in people's ways and accidentally getting in people's ways. I mean, it does feel like you've set yourself up uh, against The public, if you're literally there to stop them from traveling rather than, you know, if someone if you can't get through a street or something because a protest march is passing through it, then that's an inadvertent consequence rather than one that they were directly aiming for. And I feel that you might want to factor that into your communication strategy. And it's it's also we are seeing examples of protests that work. And I don't think that it's always clear when protests are working at the time because the situation itself doesn't change. You take, like, for instance, the Everard protest, right? Well, it was a vigil, right? But but essentially, it, it's mm. a protest. OK, now, that seems to me to be carrying public opinion with it very, very effectively indeed. You look at the, the Tory conference over the last three days and all the reactionary stuff you hear, fine. No one's talking in a reactionary way about this subject. Mm. OK, this is something they care about. And actually... On that basis, I think that, that first night, and it's partly because of the police overreaction, but it was there before the police overreaction, that you had a sort of swelling of, of public support for it. Now, I'm not always, it doesn't always come down to tactic. It can come down to the moment in which you're addressing this stuff, which is ironic, by the way, because insulate Britain have never been proved more right than they are right now when people's energy prices are going up because we have failed to insulate homes in any meaningful way. There's been a couple of government programs. They haven't been properly funded. They haven't been sort of properly implemented. So I don't think it's just about tactics. It's also about when you do it. But there, it does help if it doesn't look like you're directly going out there to inconvenience people mm. and that that inconvenience is part of a byproduct of what you're doing.
0: David, if in some exciting twist... Uh, to your career, you were uh, hired to advise into late Britain. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what form of protest do you think would get attention, make people aware that this organisation exists and what they want, without creating quite this much hostility?
3: Well, I think my career has had enough exciting twists. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't know. I, mean, I, I think I think there is it's mildly counterproductive i mean it's really annoying i I'm, I'm on the side of the angry members of the public uh, we've we've had them near where i live there are people who've got you know really important things they need to be doing and getting in the way of that doesn't do them any favours, probably doesn't do the cause that much harm. I don't think people are going to say, you know, I'm going to, going to, you know, I'm going to take out the insulation in my home in reaction. I don't think that's going to happen. But, I mean, what can they do? I don't know. I mean, it, the argument about climate change is being heard. Uh, it, 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 is, it is being made. And, you know, there just must be ways in which you can do that without inconven- inconveniencing people going about their lawful business in quite the way that they're doing it.
0: It's a funny, I think, because sometimes I think as with the civil rights movement, you only know when you've got, you know, much of the, I hate this phrase, normally sort of the verdict of history, because now the suffragettes are seen as, there's a quite cuddly aspect to the suffragettes or suffragette kitsch. know, it was like, they were literally like planting bombs. <laughs> <laughs> and they were just like getting in people's way. Like, mm-hmm. It was like very extreme. And, and when something sort of succeeds and is on the right side of history, a lot of the time people just go, "Well, I guess whatever they did, whatever they did worked." Mm-hmm. And so, it's and isn't there
3: hard. an argument about the suffragettes that, that that in fact they didn't really achieve that much, that they hardened opinion, and it was the more moderate, you know, the militant forces of this world that actually, you know, really won people over and won the argument. I mean, history doesn't remember that because history remembers the suffragettes because they did radical things and their cause prevailed but the two the, the, the causation between the two i think is not quite as clear as historical memory has it
2: it can be quite useful to have both of those kind of forces operating at the same time the more extreme and the more sort of moderate reason we like, look if you don't do a deal with us you know there's these guys over here that are you know well i hate, I hate to be
0: sort of crass and simplify this but yes it's martin luther king could just go well you do you, there's the malcolm x way <laughs> do you fancy better than that, would you that? <laughs> um so anyway but I'd just rather they don't blockade um, my road. and <laughs> <That's like, laughs> End on a nimby-ish note there. No, good luck, guys, but just not, not my road, obviously. Not Finsbury Park. Okay. Because I'll, I'll, I'll hammer you. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Ian.
1: Oh, thank you. Roz. Thank you.
0: And our guest, David Gork. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for our extra bit for patrons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers.
2: Hello and a big thank you from me to Chris Riggs, Mark Hill, Leslie Hitchens, Peter Bowden, Natalie Watts and Ryan
1: McDonald. Hello and best wishes from me to Catherine McGregor, Andrew McMichael, Julian Oliver, Kate, Paul Bennett and James Stobart.
0: And thanks from me to Simon Maunder, Andrew Bunting, Jonathan Buisson, Johansson, Deirdre Garvey and Alex Rich.
3: Oh God, what now? was presented
0: by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunst. And Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Janis Afriniewicz. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. This week on The Extra Bit, on Monday evening, Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram all went down for nearly six hours. It was good news for Twitter, at least, who an hour into the outage tweeted, hello, literally everyone. But what if the disappearance was permanent? Roz, would you miss any of these platforms if they were gone for good?
1: Uh, I miss WhatsApp, yeah. Um, Though I still struggle sometimes with WhatsApp. I don't think I really know how to use WhatsApp yet. I don't think I'm quite it's for scheming, yeah. Ross. I know, I know. I, I, I think I get it wrong. And, you know, I, I, I worry about it a lot. But Facebook and Instagram, um, no, I would not not miss them. The, the, you know, the quality of insight and human interaction that I get on those those platforms is is poor. Um, it's like it's, it's a poor simulacrum for human interaction.
0: Did but you, And you left Facebook.
1: I did, yeah. I left during the pandemic, which is not when you would expect me to leave, hmm. because you'd think that Facebook would really come into its own at a time when people were not, you know, when fa- social interaction was affected, with people outside your family was effectively banned. But what I actually, <laughs> what I actually found was that it was too easy to get sucked in to and obsessed by by subjects in a way that would have been much more difficult outside a pandemic context and without, you know, I, I was basically in a group with um, thirty or so people who might be been, been in for about eight years and I realised that I was I really disagreed with most of them about something mm. really really passionately disagreed with them about it and I didn't want to kind of just go in there and create ructions and particularly at a time like that to disturb the equilibrium of the group and that And so I decided not to flounce, but just to kind of make a gentle exit, because I didn't need that in my life at the time, because I was getting angry as a result of what was happening. And I needed to stop getting angry because there were many, many things making me angry at the time. You know, Facebook, Facebook for me is it's 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 an engine for division. It's not an engine for empathy.
0: Um. that was a trailer for the bonus fringe event in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to Back Us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. It does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.